Hey, everybody, this is John Petrucci from Dream Theater. You're listening to Iron City Rocks. What's up, everybody? This is Sully Erna, and you are tuned into Iron City Rock. Hey, everyone, this is James Labrie. And this is Matt Guillory, and you're listening to Iron City Rock. Welcome to episode 214 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We bring you the best hard rock, heavy metal, and blues music talk on the net. Episode 214, we are joined by Matt Guillory and James Labrie. James Labrie, you might recognize from the band Dream Theater. He's got a killer new solo album out, and also there's a forthcoming Dream Theater DVD and album on the way. So really, tons of stuff going on for James Labrie. Uh, also joined by his guitarist Matt Guillory to talk about the project and then also we will be joined by a guitarist who's been with a ton of successful acts including most notably Alice Cooper also played a stint on some Kiss materials well we'll be joined by Dick Wagner to talk about a book he has written so we'll get to that in a minute what we're going to do we're going to play a track from James Labrie's new solo album the album is called Impermanent Resonance the track is called Agony and then we're going to talk to James and Matt Joining us, we have James LeBray of Dream Theater and Matt Guillory. How are you guys doing this morning? Well, we're doing great. Yeah. Great. I wanted to talk to you guys. You have a, a fantastic new record out uh, in Permanent Resonance. Um, I wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about how you approach, you know, this is kind of, you've had a bit of a consistent lineup since the last record, um, Static Impulse. How do you um, guys write? I mean, I know you're obviously, James, very busy with a multitude of projects. How do you guys, you know, where do you fit in writing and, and what was your objective? You want to take the ball, uh, Matt, and go for it? Yeah, go for it. Go for it, James. 
Well, I mean, uh, I guess the way to go is is that um, you know Matt Matt Guillory and myself we've been we've been writing uh, now together for 14 years, and uh, we started back in '98 was I think was our, our initial contact, and at that point we had other uh, people involved, and I'm, I'm mentioning the uh, the Mall Muzzler albums, um, but I think that you know really Matt and I really started to create our own identity musically with Elements of Persuasion that was released in 2005. Um, but since then, um, you know, it's been Matt and I kind of like steering the ship and and keeping things going. But as we approached, um, I guess, uh, the Static Impulse album, that's when uh, the, the, I guess we started to bring in a, a more you know, confirmed and something that now has been consistent lineup mm-hmm. and that being bringing in, you know, we had Marco Sfoli for Elements of Persuasion, but it wasn't until Static Impulse that we also brought in Ray Riendahl and Peter Wildur. And we did that again, obviously that lineup here. Um, but I think both Matt and I with that album, with the, with the Static Impulse release, realized that we really kind of hit our stride uh in in a more band uh identity or entity so sure. to speak and by by doing an album like that you know um it was it was an album where Matt really started to uh come to the front and be uh not only the main composer of everything that goes on here but uh you know uh, more or less the, the the director like he's directing everything how it's going down um, you know, how he sees it unfolding and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, uh, it seems to work, it worked really well for us with static. With this, it was taking the approach, but having, um, another, uh, I, I guess a, a continuation of what we established musically. But wanting to, uh, you know, just take it to another level with, uh, the melody content, uh, being that there, you know, that became the priority, the vocal priority, um, you know, with hooks and something that was memorable and so on. But that started over a year and a half ago, mm-hmm. um, the actual writing for, for Impermanent Resonance. But, uh, a lot of that came together, uh, which I've been saying a lot, not only in interviews when it's about just the solo, uh, band and album it i've been saying it even in dream theater interviews that you know this thing is um a lot of it has come to be where it's it's matt Guillory being one of the main composers and uh as you can see on this album he also produced it mm-hmm. so i kind of meandered there and I'm, I'm suffering a little bit from jet lag no, that's, <laughs> so you're gonna have to excuse me no i problem. just got back from europe last night <laughs> so if i ramble on you just you got to say stop no, no, no okay, worries at, at all. Point, but anyways, yeah. So Matt, Matt, when you wrote the, the you know the music for this, do you write? You're, you're a keyboardist. Um, do you write on the keyboard? Do you write on the guitar, or um, you, how do you put the songs together? Or do you start with a vocal? I write, on, I, I write on vocals. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> or at least I, I try to. I try to. Uh, you know, uh, that's that's my starting point. Um, okay. And uh, it, it it wasn't always that way, um, but. It started to become that way with uh, Static Impulse and then, um, uh, you know, for Impermanent Resonance as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, more often than not, I'm starting with a vocal melody and then building 
the song around that, okay. um, writing all the instrument parts um, to support the melody rather than, you know, coming up with like a chord progression or a riff and then trying to impose a, a vocal melody over that. That's a great word, impose, you know, because you, you can, sometimes you can tell when, when it's written the other way around. Now, when, you, when you're doing these vocal melodies, are you just kind of doing some scat in your head and then you get it down to tape, or, or do you sit down and formally compose the, the vocal melody on, like, a piano or something? Um, usually it's like when I, I go for a walk or something. Yeah. Um, I, I uh, you know, I'll hear a, a melody and then um, I'll just record it into my phone. Okay. Um, but that's that's usually how it works for me. Um, and then I'll you know take that idea once I get home or when I have time, and then I'll I'll try to um, you know expand on it you know in the with the computer you know with the uh, uh, recording software that I use. Okay. But uh, but yeah, that's where it starts. You know, it, it usually ends up on my phone first, and then. Um, then I develop it further once I'm, um, you know, at the computer. Yeah, it's amazing how much modern music comes out of the phone anymore. That's fantastic. I know. <laughs> you know totally. The, you know, you, you, gone are the days of having to write songs on cocktail napkins. You could just grab your iPhone. <laughs> right. Now, um, right, right. Do, you, do you guys get together then geographically to, to kind of put these ideas, or, or, or Matt, do you kind of formulate the full track and, and you know, email it, uh, that kind of stuff over to James? Um, not really. It's just, um, technology is so great now that, um, you know, we can always send ideas back and forth rather, you know, um, quickly and conveniently. So, um, there really isn't a need for us to, you know, to sit down together, although that would be cool. And we yeah, have in the past. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, we, we definitely have in the past. Um, mm -hmm. but it, it just, it is kind of difficult that we are so far apart, you know. Um, you know, it would, yeah, it would be great. Yeah, we make it work. I mean, we'll we'll send, you know, uh, I'll send Matt my ideas, and then he turns that those ideas around into something, and then he throws that back to me, and then it's 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 a back and forth situation. And even uh, like on on this album, we brought in uh, Peter Witcher. As well, and Nicholas uh, Lundin, and they they also were working from a long distance, um, you know, standpoint. But at the same time, the ideas were, you know, being translated accurately and articulately through uh, through technology. You know, I mean, if that's, I mean, everyone else is has their their obligations, and and I guess at some point you have to say, you know, this is the only way that we're going to be able to put something like this together and and really make it work. Which at the same time, it's going to take a little bit longer uh, if you really want to reach that goal. But you you have to uh, admit to that being being the process. And yes, it will entail more time. Yeah, I mean, it's fantastic if you think you know when your career started, James. If you were to try to do something like this um, without the technology that's available today, you know, with your schedules and, and you know DVDs and new right, albums right. and things like that, this project could have sat for even longer. You know, well, it would have been, yeah, it would have been just, you know, I mean, how would we really have been doing it, you know, sending tapes via mail and FedEx yeah. back and forth? I mean, it would have been, it would have been unbelievable. And then not to mention, not everybody uh, in the band would have had their own little personal studio. So it right. would have even been, <laughs> you know, yeah. just that well, much. It actually, it did, 
it did start out that way, though, uh, at least for, for you and I. Yeah, um, for the first MoMA's. Or yeah, we, I remember I remember mailing stuff to you, yeah. like mail mail stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is definitely uh, <laughs> uh, a more, more advanced way of collaborating now. <laughs> yeah, we thought we were happening, too, because it would be mailing CDs. Yeah, wow. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah, no kidding. Yep. Yeah, it's funny to think back, you know, like the Tascam Porta Studios and stuff like that that we used to use, you know. There's more technology in your phone now. You can make a better product. So. It's unreal. Unreal. Yeah. Now, um, obviously, with touring commitments and everyone else is, is very busy as well, is there any uh, talk of trying to do some of this material live in the future? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, you know, obviously... Um, the other guys in the, in the band, you know, um, everyone is fired up. Everybody wants to do this, but it's the fact that I'm getting ready and I'm gearing up for another Dream Theater uh, world tour coming coming January 15th. We start in Portugal, and then it's another, you know, that goes anywhere from 12 to 14 to 15 months. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we were, you know, as far as this band goes, the solo uh, band, uh, Matt and I discussed it along with the other guys, and it was like, you know, for us to try and get something like that out there within this short sure. a window of opportunity, it would have been, it would have, it wouldn't have been given uh, the right amount of attention and and proper setup. Um, you know, a lot of logistics go into any kind of tour. So what we're thinking at this point is that definitely we we have to take this out. I think it would uh, be incredible to have this in a live environment. And we're all wanting to do so. Uh, we're just accepting the fact that we're going to have to be a little patient, and we'll do it fall, shortly following um, the conclusion of the Dream Theater sure. tour. Yeah. Now, when you guys approach this material, is there any conscience effort, or is it just the fact that you have different creative influences uh, at work here that you, you separate this music from what Dream Theater does? Because I know this, this, you know, a lot of this music to me seems a little bit heavier, with a little bit more. I would almost call it modern metal as opposed to this, you know, the, the progressive metal that we're used to with Dream Theater. Well, let me just say something real quick, and then, Matt, you could take it from there. I think it has to do with, first and foremost, the only reason Matt and I do this is because we feel that it does have its own identity, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and if it wasn't for that, it wouldn't make sense for me or Matt to get together and do this. I think it it, it comes from the fact that, as I, I've been saying, that Matt is the main composer with this. Mm-hmm. And because of that, he comes from another angle. I mean, he's technically capable of doing anything that Dream Theater does, but he comes from another angle is in the way that he writes. And then there's other sides of me, you know, musically too. Like when I throw Matt a riff or a melody idea, it's not at all thinking about Dream Theater. It's thinking about what, you know, the other side of music that strikes me, and that is what this album represents, and that's why I wholeheartedly embrace it, is that it's all about the melody content and something that's hook-driven and something that's a little bit more in the mainstream uh, area but with a huge metal backbone. But, yeah. Matt, I mean, you can you can elaborate on that. It's like... Sure. Um, well, yeah, I mean, just to elaborate on, on what James has said... Um, yeah, I, I I listen to a lot of different um, stuff. I mean, I metal. Uh, I metal is definitely like my roots. Mm-hmm. 
Um, for sure. Um, you know, I, I love a lot of the heavier types of bands like, you know, Meshuggah and In Flames and Soil Work and um, The Haunted and, and, you know, a lot of a lot of the Scandinavian, um, you know, metal bands, mm-hmm. uh, especially the melodic death metal. But but also at the same time, I, I love, uh, you know, contemporary pop music. So um, I, I get a lot of my uh, inspiration, you know, as far as uh, the melodic content and hooks and uh, just arrangements um, from modern pop music. Okay. So for me, it's, it's kind of like blending those two... Uh, uh, drastically different styles into into one that sort of at least has to make sense to me first, but but yeah, I mean that's that's in a nutshell that's that's pretty much what it is for me. Yeah, that, that I was in my head when you were saying I was thinking Behemoth meets Bieber, but that's kind of a, a neat uh, dichotomy there. <laughs> um, <laughs> wow. Now, um, just one question I did have um, in listening to the record. Um, mm-hmm. the, the kind of, I don't want to necessarily call it death metal growls, but who was that? Is that you, James, or is that no, Matt? Uh, is that? No, I wouldn't be singing if, if I was doing that shit. No. <laughs> that's, that's Peter Willower, uh, okay. our drummer. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, he just, uh, you know, we initially, you know, uh, brought him on board, for, you know, to play drums mm. and to, to do drums on these records with us, but... Um, uh, it was later on that we actually found out that, you know, he was a, a great screamer. Yeah. So it made, it made sense for us to, to just have him do those as well. Yeah, I, was, I have to admit, on the first pass, I was listening to it while I was, I was doing something else, and I heard that, and my I kinda eyebrow just went up, you know, and my ear kind of cocked a little bit. I'm like, it doesn't sound like James's voice, you know, in any way. Usually when someone screams, you can still kind of hear the, the you know, the, Tonality. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah, right, right. You know, it, it sounded, you know, is almost like a different instrument, you know, to, to, yeah. to make that connection. I was like, who is that? And I didn't have the liner notes to kind of go down and dig through that. Yeah. So fantastic. Well, he was being a typical drummer. He thought that he needed to be heard not only with the big uh, bombastic <laughs> instrument that he plays, but vocally. So that we let him do it. <laughs> no, I'm just louder. Be louder. It's a drummer thing. Yeah, yeah right. Exactly. Even at any level, you can poke fun at drummers. All right, guys. Well, I appreciate uh, you taking the time out this morning uh, to talk about the album again, Impermanent Resonance. It's available now on Inside Out Music, iTunes, Amazon, all those fantastic places. And and also have to highly recommend Static Impulse. Uh, We'll be looking for you, James. Obviously, you've got a new record with Dream Theater dropping in in a fantastic movie uh, coming out. So I'm going to be seeing a lot of you over the next couple months, and hopefully we'll catch you in the States in 2014. Matt. Uh, and definitely, uh, everyone keep keep your eyes peeled for this for this band when when we come up with this as well. Yeah, Matt. Hopefully, we'll get you we'll get you a tour around the United States as well. So it'll be fantastic to see you guys. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. Thank you. All right. Again, a thanks to James LeBray and Matt Guillory for coming on the show. In addition to Impermanent Residence, which is available now for purchase from James LeBray. Uh, Dream Theater has a new self-titled album coming out. This will be their second album with Mike Mangini, so I'm sure that'll be fantastic. Mike did an incredible job on the last record, so this will be even more cohesive now that it's been road-tested with this lineup. Also, you want to check out what they look like on the road with Mike Mangini, you can check out Live at Luna Park, which will be shown in some movie theaters in uh, mid-September. 
Uh, if you search for Dream Theater Live at Luna Park, that's L-U-N-A, you can find uh, they have a website specifically for it that will talk about that. It also comes out on Blu-ray and DVD later on, closer to Christmas. So that uh, actually captured a two-night stint they did in August of 2012. Uh, so it will be really cool to check out that lineup of Dream Theater for those who didn't get to catch them in person. So a lot of things going on for James LeBrie, so you're going to be hearing a lot about uh, him and Dream Theater in the very near future. Turn our attention now to an interview I, I did a little bit earlier this year, and this interview has already aired on our sister show, but this is a chance for those of you who are not familiar with our sister show, the Heavy Metal Book Club, to learn a little bit more about it. HeavyMetalBookClub.com, and also you can search for Heavy Metal Book Club on iTunes and subscribe, also on Facebook and Twitter and all that good stuff, is a website and a podcast devoted to uh, literature that is around music. So it'll cover the tell-all novels that you'll see. We'll go into uh, graphic comics and things like that. Uh, anything really hard rock and uh, metal related uh, when it comes to on paper. Probably won't much talk much about tab books, but uh, you get the idea. This is an interview we did with Dick Wagner, who uh, for many, many years was a guitarist with Alice Cooper. Played on a lot of Alice's early hits. Uh, and also did some work with Kiss uh, and just almost countless other artists. Uh, too many to name getting into the interview. But Dick has written a book. Uh, it's a really cool book. It's a series of vignettes, which if you're not familiar, are kind of like... Uh, think of them as short stories, but actually true things. Um, so it's not a book that you have to read um, from front to back. You can pick it up and read it in the middle, and it still makes perfect sense. So... I'm going to check it out. It's available at Dick Wagner's website, and uh, Dick and I talk about that in great detail. So, if you're already familiar with the Heavy Metal Book Club, you've heard this already, so you can probably just call it a day. If you're not familiar with the Heavy Metal Book Club, this is a chance to get an idea of what it's all about. So, without further ado, Mr. Dick Wagner. Was it around 2011? The title "Not Only Women Bleed." Um, do you want to talk a little bit about how the project came together and what kind of drove you to, to make a book about yourself? Well, you know, all my life I've written poetry and short story stuff like that. I was uh, writing a couple of new short stories, and this was in a period of time when I was unable to play my guitar, so I spent a lot of time writing stuff. 
Um, exactly. And it makes a big difference when you read it because it feels like it's coming from you. You know, you're actually able to take and put it in written form. It doesn't sound like you, you spit this out to tape, and that, that's a nice touch. Um, if I could just kind of to walk down through some of the points of the book, um, you were in a band prior to Alice Cooper. Uh, I think a lot of people obviously know your name from Alice Cooper and your work with Kiss and and beyond. But um, do you want to talk a little bit about the Frost and you know kind of what could have been with that band? Well, the Frost uh, it, it was my band. I wrote the music for it, and uh, it was uh, a tremendous band. First of all, I just got to say that. And people say it right and left to me all the time. It was really an amazing rock and roll band. And we were kind of like, we were a little progressive. I mean, it was definitely rock, but it was a little bit progressive at certain points. And so I think we were kind of on top of the game there. We were instrumental in uh, elevating the uh, Detroit music scene during the 1960s. And uh, so it was an important band. And uh, we broke all attendance records everywhere. Uh, of course, they've all been broken now by everyone else who's been successful. But it was 1967, 68, 69, mm-hmm. around that time. And uh, it was just terrific and a great experience for me because it gave me a chance to expand my songwriting and expand my, my music. Uh, from where I had been playing, like in this group called the Busmen. Right. It was also a band of mine um, who were very successful in the, in the region, but uh, not as good musically as the Frost were going to be. I left the Busmen because I needed to expand my horizons musically. And I think we really did that. And it was a great live show. It was an energetic super tight, um, tight vocal harmonies, um, great guitarist, and, and a drummer who was like the top guy around, mm-hmm. Bobby Ray. So it was, a, it was quite a period of time for me. It was a, We worked like seven nights a week, any time we wanted to work. I mean, the scene at that time was so, uh, so immense in Detroit that we could work all the time. We were getting requests to play places. That were opening. Most of the new venues that came online, uh, the Frost would open in order to ensure that they had a crowd mm-hmm. for their opening night. And that really paid off in a lot of places. Now, uh, Detroit at that time, I think a lot of people, you know, you think of the Sunset Strip in the 80s and uh, New York, obviously, for their music scene. But Detroit in that time, uh, there's some real legendary performers came out. I mean, was, was it a harmonious scene or? Were, were bands kind of fighting for, to get, you know, to be top dog in the Detroit area? Well, you know, bands always fight to be top dog. I mean, mm-hmm. guitar players fight to be you know, top dog. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to be the best. And only some of us can be, you know. I mean, right. It's living in, in, in talent. It's a talent thing. There are so many people who want to play and so many bands. And we're all fighting to, you know, to gain recognition. And so I wouldn't say it was like harmonious in the sense that we're all buddies. Mm-hmm. But there also wasn't any acrimony in there. It was just a normal competition. It's the sure. American way. Sure. 
Yeah, I mean, if you look, it's just, you know, when you consider the acts of that era, um, you know, that came out of that region, it's, it's really astounding, and I don't think a lot of people really pay attention to it. You know, you look back and think, okay, yourself, you tell Well, you know, what I think about in Detroit is that if you take a good look at it, it's the only big city that's had been so prolific in new and influential artists every decade, mm-hmm. from like the 1940s on. So now, every decade there's somebody new, some other people that are new, a whole new music scene created mm-hmm. by people in, in Detroit. Yeah. It's something in the water. You know, people in Detroit all go down every morning to the ritual of drinking from the Detroit River. And it's in the water, I guess. Yeah, I think some of it is, I think... That was meant to be light humor, but, you know, I understand. It wasn't that funny. But yeah. Okay. That's right. But the uh, I, I think when you think about Detroit, I think it, it's a kind of a microcosm of America, really. I mean, it's uh, you know, America. I have to agree with you on that. Really, it is definitely middle America. Yeah, you know, it, I mean, at that time it was industrial America, and mm-hmm. it's a lot more information technology and things now. But right. fortunately, the automobile business has made a sort of a recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, but people are still unemployed in this state. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's, it's a crying shame. You know, I think it has a lot to do with politics, but I really don't want to get into political discourse here. No, that's okay. Um, let's talk a, a little bit about your um, your kind of musical past with Billy Joel. I mean, that's kind of a, you know, obviously things worked out well for you in the long run, but that is a, has to go down as a kind of a what might have been um had you stayed Oh, well, that's exactly true, because I went to New York City to put together a band with Billy Joel and Rick Mangoni, a drummer, fantastic drummer. Mm-hmm. And it was going to be a three-piece group. Billy played organ, and he was playing bass with his left hand. Mm-hmm. So we didn't need a bass player. So we had the organ and me playing guitar. And Billy Joel and I both writing songs. We never got the chance to collaborate. Um, Billy had some health issues and had to drop out before we actually completed the project. But we did uh, a few rehearsals and it was, it was marvelous and amazing. It would have been something special. And we were going to call the group World War III. And our agent manager at that time, Dennis Arfa, who is, is not one of the top agents in the whole music business, um, he, he was going to name us World War III, and we were going to open our first gig was in the Madison Square Garden. I mean, it was a huge yeah, that's thought. A- you know, that thought. But he admired Cherry Knight and the ad campaign that he had done for Grand Punk, and wanted to kind of copy that with a big ad advertising campaign for World War Three. And open up Madison Square Garden. It was outrageous enough that you know who knows it might have worked. Yeah, but no, we never got the chance. And it was, but it was an interesting idea. Yeah. Now, um, obviously, your work with Bob Ezrin has, has certainly altered uh, your life immensely. Um, do you want to talk just a little bit about how you you happened to meet Bob and a little bit about you know how that uh, well, I met Bob Ezrin um, when he came in to possibly be our producer for Ursa Major. Mm-hmm. And he and I got along great. He was younger than me, and I was pretty um, strict about holding on to my musical ideas. 
but he had great ideas too and had had some hits and um so we had a really great relationship and as it turned out as he became a bigger and bigger producer he would use me on most of his records mm-hmm. and i was like his go-to guy you know the, the guitar player that he could always tell him coming up with something good mm-hmm. and also the right songs so um, my relationship with Ezra was kind of cemented in creativity. Yeah, now... But I have great respect for him today. And uh, he and I are friends, and we're like friends for life, because we did some wonderful things together. Yeah, I, I know in reading, you know, remarks from Ace Frehley and stuff, that Bob could be, uh, you know, difficult for guitarists, and I imagine, you know, you set the bar very high, obviously. Um did you was was it difficult to, to walk into the sessions like you had worked with um, Aerosmith, um, Kiss, obviously, um, to kind of walk into those sessions? Was there was there animosity with the rest, you know, the other members of the band, or were they just happy to you know have you come in and get the parts right and get it done? You know, to be honest with you, there was no animosity because none of the guys were ever there. Mm-hmm. I walked into the Aerosmith uh, situation where they had tracks already played by the guys in the Aerosmith, but all the new guitar solos needed to be covered. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe Perry wasn't cutting it, and whatever reason, um, called me, they called Steve Hunter, the two of us did Get Your Wings, mm-hmm. and um, Train Temporal, and those classic things. Um, then we did, after that, uh, we did Alice Cooper, and we read, I mean, it was, we were both session guitar players, and we had to be a great team, and so we were using a few records, mm-hmm. uh, which was making me very happy. Yeah. If you look on Facebook today, it's a picture of and a picture of me juxtaposed together in a couple of recent photos, and it's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. But I'm trying to talk to Steve about going out and doing some stuff together. Yeah. And so far, it's not happening, but it, it, it could happen. It might happen. Yeah, I think when when a lot of people put, you know, the, the great guitar duos of all time, I mean, you guys, you know, are, you know, right up there with, the, you, you know, the, the guys from Thin Lizzy and, and, and some bands like that. It's just, uh, you know, unfortunately, you guys went, kind of went under the radar, um, you know, with some of the uncredited work, like you mentioned with Aerosmith. Well, that's that's part of the problem. I mean, yeah. at that time, because we did uh, Aerosmith, and I did Kiss, and he did uh, Jack Bruce, and um, we did Alice Cooper together. Right. And Lou Reed, and Nick Lancer that was on Lou Reed. The yeah. initial stuff with Alice Cooper that I had played with, thank you, was hidden underneath the underwear. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Um, although when it came time to welcome to my nightmare, that all changed because I had been brought in to co-write all the songs with Alice and I and to lead the band. You know, so yeah, I did the thing the leader I had to do is take all the great musicians you just played with with Lou Reed and band those people. Yeah, just kind of moved the band to a different singer in, in some respects. Yeah, um, it was like, and it just worked. I mean, it just really worked. Yeah, and and I think a lot of people looking back. I mean, Alice was really hit his stride with "Welcome to My Nightmare." Um, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is a 
you know, as I think you mentioned in your book, you know, he, he's a phenomenal, you know, songwriter. You know, I think a lot of people think of Alice as the showman, uh, you know, the character, but, you know, the lyricist. Well, he's a great lyricist. He's a great lyricist, and he's very good with concepts. And uh, we did a lot of writing together, Alice and I, over the years, and it's always just a real fun fest for you and I writing together. Mm-hmm. Because we're both very fast and coming up with things, and also changing things that need to be changed. Yeah. As a songwriter, you have to learn to edit yourself. You got to be able to say, okay, that's good, but I can't use it in this song. You know, so you take ideas and you set them aside, and you, you know, use them later, maybe on a different song. We've done that a few times. Is is it the writing with Alice was just a, a real pleasure? I mean, it's probably the best times of my life. As a songwriter, is it um, difficult for you to let go of an idea? And, and I ask that question kind of is, uh, do you find yourself obsessing over a chord change or a solo on a record, or are you able to, you know, kind of let obsessing go? Obsessing never. Obsessing never. No, I don't. Because I believe that for every idea you have, in this ten more in your mm-hmm. brain, too. And you just have to dig it out, you know. Let it come forth. Yeah. Um, so we checked, I mean, we recorded this song called uh, No More Love at Your Convenience. Mm-hmm. And it was a really good song. And we recorded it for three days, but it never worked. So, but we knew that the elements were still there, so we broke it down into two songs. And Alice and I went off to the back and wrote You, which can be a huge hit. And the other one was Still, no more love and convenience, which was also on the same album. Mm-hmm. But they had started out as one song, and then now they were two. Yeah. So you got you got to be able to edit yourself and compromise yourself, and and not be obsessed with a particular thing unless you know you're right, and you know that that's the only way it can go to really have the effect that you want. Then you have a right to obsess on it. Mm-hmm. And I personally. Don't hold on to ideas that aren't working. Never. I never settle. And um, don't let people influence me to either way. Well, that's a great song. That's, I take it all with a grain of salt and then do what I feel is, you know, that's all you can really do. Do you enjoy collaborating more or do you prefer? I do. I do enjoy collaborating. I love writing alone. Uh, you know, I've written most of my songs alone. Mm-hmm. But I've written most of my hits in collaboration, so mm-hmm. I, I try to go either way and, uh, and enjoy it either way because I love writing songs. Yeah. Speaking oh, of, of collaborations, you mentioned in in the book um, working with Bernie Taupin. Um, can you talk a little bit about that project? Well, Bernie Taupin and Alice Cooper had become like friends, and they were hanging out together, and. Uh, Alice wanted to do an album, and he asked Bernie to, to join in with him on writing lyrics, that they would write lyrics together. Now, how much they actually wrote together, I don't know, but I know they came to me one morning with a lyric for a song called, How Are You Gonna See Me Now? Mm-hmm. And I loved the lyric. I sat down at the piano and wrote it in about 20 minutes. And just one of the songs, it just has a natural flow to it. That the melody had to go where it went. It just, it just was so obvious in my mind. 
So working with Bernie and Alice together was uh, it was a treat for me. I mean, David Foster was producing, Bernie and Alice writing lyrics, I was writing music, and playing guitar, and also playing guitar with Steve Lukather there, and and the other guys from Toto, just like the backup band on the group uh, from the inside album with David Foster producing. And how are you going to see me now? It turned out to be the hit that uh, it would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think and that's a... production. Yeah, it's an o- often overlooked album, but I mean, you you, you mentioned, you know... How you many... know something? It shouldn't be, because if you really take a listen to the album, it's like listening to Abbey Road. Mm-hmm. It's got so much music, continuity, and um, just music. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great album, but I love to listen to it. Yeah, I mean... Even though I wrote the songs, I mean, I just try to put myself outside of it. Yeah. And it's just a great album. Yeah, and you, you mentioned working with Steve Lukather, you know, at the time, maybe not the, a household name, but certainly over the years has proven himself to be one of the greatest of all time, really. Um, so, you know, a fantastic album from the inside to go back and revisit... Uh, for those out there, um, do you want to talk a little bit about you know kind of what you're up to now? You have uh, Desert Dreams, uh, you know, kind of what what that is and what you're doing now. Well, I'm, uh, I do have my production company. What I'm doing is I'm touring and doing concerts, and in between certain concerts, I'm doing book signing events, selling my book, which is doing really well. I just won five major awards for the book in the last month, two months. And uh, it's in its third printing. It's doing well, and I still have to go out and tour the book. You know, just leaving it to Barnes & Noble and leaving it to uh, anyone, leaving it to anyone doesn't work. You have to be proactive if you're going to sell yourself. Mm-hmm. So I'm out on the road all the time doing concerts or doing book events. And the rest of the time I'm producing and writing. So my life is totally consumed with music. You know, I'm sitting here telling you that I got my guitar in my hand right now because I play it all the time. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm just uh, obsessed now because of the years that I couldn't play. Sure. You know, I've got the, the blessing of still being alive and having a chance to do things musically. So, I'm totally into it, and that's that's basically my life. Yeah, it's interesting. You Although I have, have written three chapters for my new book, huh. so I'll have another book out in another three or four years. Great, great. Look forward to that. It's it's funny how you mentioned you know touring in support of a book, and really how you know the the, the market of, of music has changed, and obviously so much since you uh, you know made your recording debut. And the whole business has changed. Yeah. You know, a guy like me can't get arrested making a record. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I can get arrested when I'm playing live. In fact, I hope I don't get arrested. But Yeah. I, I was... You know, uh, I'm trying to make a joke. Trying to be funny. Yeah. Yeah, it is <laughs> funny. I don't, I don't think anyone could get arrested making a record now. I mean, it's 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 tough. I mean, you know, I mean... It, it is would, very tough. It is very, very tough. You know, people have so many things to choose from. Yeah. It used to be back in the 60s and 70s. Music was such a, a huge part of everybody's life. Mm-hmm. And the whole connection to the social scene and everything. 
But today it's a little bit different. And uh, people have so many things to choose from that instead of buying a CD, they rent nine movies with Netflix, you know. Um, there's so many choices, and people don't often or always make the choice of music, which is unfortunate, but at the same time, we all adapt, and we move forward. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's interesting you mentioned, you know, about choices, because, you know, with I think with technology, it's so easy to, to give a, a record maybe five or ten minutes and make a decision based on that, where, you know, 30, yeah. 40 years ago, you went to a... a a department store and paid you know the money for the album, and you lived with that album, and you didn't have three hundred others at your fingertips. You know, I know, right. I, I know with you know several of the, of the releases, including Alice's "Welcome to My Nightmare," you know the sequel made a very conscious effort to to leave it in the car, leave it on the iPod, and give it seven or eight listens. And how much a difference that makes, you know, because you know the second one was a phenomenal record. I know, obviously, you you took part in that as well as a whole host of Alice's, uh, you know, kind of brethren on what really is a very good album. But you know, it's you know people will listen to the classic one, but you know, we'll only yeah. get a few seconds to the new one, and it, it's unfortunate. It's it's really a, a shame how it that's. Is, but that money is the way it is. So you deal with it. Yeah, it's all you can do. Yeah. Well. So, uh, Myself personally, I I work with my manager Susan, and we do everything every day, you know, to brand my name, mm-hmm. and you know, doing books. I mean, these things touring with the book and with the concerts. I mean, it's an ordeal. Yeah, it's great when you get on stage and you play, and it's all beautiful. But just leading up to it, and, and all the the work that goes into actually putting the two together. Mm-hmm. It's it's an ordeal, you know, so it's not like an easy thing to do when I'm seventy years old. Yeah. Shouldn't I be retiring, you know? Well of course I'll never retire because this is what I do, this is who I am. Yeah. So I'm sure I'm gonna die on stage some night. I'll yeah. try to make it in some kind of spectacular solo. Yeah, I was gonna say you can really <laughs> That would that would be pretty epic to to hear it that way. <laughs> Unfortunate to lose you, but it would be really memorable. Memorable. Um, yeah, I want to make it so it's in the headlines. I want it to go viral. Yeah, that would be. I had a couple of things go viral on me this year, and worldwide, my name got branded pretty heavily for a while. So, so that's good. That's all good. That's what we strive for every day, and that's our purpose. Just yeah. to even at seventy, get my name out there. And I'm working with young artists, um, you know, for in production and writing, and I'm, I'm kind of like a, a teacher, you know, of, yeah. of uh, technique and years of experience that is valuable to, to people. Yeah. And, and so I'm doing all that, too. I'm trying to give back as much as I am to, you know, reward myself. I'm trying yeah. to, you know, yeah. to be a good person. Yeah. It's basically what it is. Yeah. yeah, and it's great to hear that you still have a love of, of playing. And at the end of the day, I think everybody who's ever really gotten gotten the guitar, you know, envies you know that you can be seventy years old and you know, granted, you're still it's still a job, but it's you know you're playing the guitar, and that's that's what it's all about. I think you know. Well, it is for me. You know, like when I had my heart attack and stroke in two thousand seven. My left arm was paralyzed, mm. and I couldn't play for five years. 
all this time to rehab and refocus and dig into my brain somewhere on how to play the guitar again. Yeah. It was very difficult until they discovered that I had hydrocephalus. I didn't know I had it. But when they did that and put the shunt in my brain to get off the excess spinal fluid, Mm. I started getting my rhythm back and I started feeling I could play again. And it really brought me back to being able to play. It's taken me three, almost four years now to get back to playing at least very close to what I always played. So I'm feeling really good about it. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Uh, you know, the stroke is such a, you know, can be such a devastating thing. I think a lot of people, you know, with, with heart attacks, you know, can be sudden and fatal, obviously, but the stroke... Uh, yeah, I'm very you know, fortunate, and I, I was only damaged in, this, in my left arm, mm-hmm. and, and it did come back, so I'm yeah. just really thankful for all that. Yeah, as a fellow guitar player, though, to hear that anybody's losing the, the use of their left hand is scary, you know. It's, it's oh, man, I mean, you know, as a guitar player, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Without the left hand, what are you going to play? You're going to yeah. play like an organ. You know, you think about that, you could probably get by without your right hand with, you know, you know, prosthetics and things, but your left hand, you're kind of done. You, you, you know, you flip the guitar yeah, over. Yeah, the left hand is uh, ultimately absolutely essential to playing guitar. So, it's well, you know, so great. I, a, I made a pretty dramatic recovery. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very thankful yeah. for that. And I had great, you know, medical help mm-hmm. and the help of, I mean, fans all around the world. I mean, I couldn't believe the messages. And, yeah. The mail, I mean, all of this stuff for me, and I couldn't really relate to it. It was so heavy. Yeah. yeah but it really inspired me, you know. Yeah. That's and fantastic. I feel inspired today. People call me the maestro of rock, and I love that. I think that's really an honor. Yeah. And uh, people are responding to my shows, and uh, I feel really good. Yeah, it is. It's fantastic, and it's great. Uh, Love the book again. Not only women bleed. Uh, take on obviously your classic. Only women bleed. Um, where where is the best place for folks to get this? Obviously, um, you, the Dick Wagner. Oh, uh, my, my book. My book. Yes. The best place to get it, honestly, is a website called notonlywomenbleed.com. Okay. And because every book, every book that's purchased through that site goes to my office and I autograph every one of them. Awesome. Yeah, yeah so they're autographed copies. Okay. Um, otherwise, you, know, you order from Barnes & Noble or you can get it through any bookstore. And you, have, you probably have to order it. Not many, not all bookstores stock it. Mm-hmm. But you can definitely put it in an order so you can go wherever you want to go with it. But notonlywomenbleed.com is where you go if you want to get some personal attention from me. Fantastic, and obviously, uh, I failed to mention it comes with two CDs of material of, of yours, which is just a, a huge added bonus. And uh, yeah, I, mean, I think it is. It's stuff that I'm really proud of, and uh, I think anybody who likes my music will really like these albums. Certainly, Dick. I, I want to thank you for taking up a chunk of your afternoon here, but I want to thank you so much. It's been an honor talking to you and a. And a Privilege listening to your music all these years. It was definitely my pleasure. I really enjoyed your your right. questions, and I really enjoyed meeting you. All right, and that about wraps it up for Iron City Rocks this time around. You can visit us at ironcityrocks.com or find us on iTunes, 
search out Iron City Rocks. Go to our Facebook page, forward slash Iron City Rocks. Twitter is forward slash Iron City Rocks. Also, don't forget about HeavyMetalBookClub.com, and you can get all the links to the social networks on there as well. Any feedback, IronCityRocks at gmail.com. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. We'll catch you next time.